Welcome to Systemizer Success. I'm Dr. Steve Day. Today's episode is the recording of an interview where I was the guest interviewed on a show called The Expat Property Show. And this is an interview with a lot of the stuff you'd expect from me being interviewed, talking about didact, about delegation, about working with remote workers and all the rest of it. But the beginning especially, it digs deeper into the reasons why I do what I do, probably more than I've ever shared on any platform ever. So if you're interested to understand the journey that I went on to become this systems geek and absolutely lover of remote working at living a time and also location freedom lifestyle and why I do what I do and what drives me and the passion to share the knowledge that I have and I've built up over the 20 years in business and why I bother to share that with the world in the way I do this is the episode for you it's also a great episode with some detailed summaries of some of the most important aspects of effective working with remote workers to delegation to basically putting your system on autopilot. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did recording it. Thanks very much. So the question is this, how do entrepreneurs like us who don't have an endless supply of cash, how do we leverage the best apps, virtual assistants, automation tools, and systems to scale our businesses, increase our profits, and have more time to do what we love to do each day? That is the question, and this podcast will give you the answer. My name is Dr. Steve Day, and this is Systemize Your Success. Now, if you're like me and you live thousands of miles away from the UK and you have a full-time job, your need for processes is arguably even more critical than for UK-based property investors, which is exactly the position in which today's guest found himself when he moved to Stockholm with his Swedish wife in 2015, after already assembling a UK property portfolio. If you've been listening to this podcast for a while, you'll probably have heard me talk occasionally about the e-myth by Michael Gerber. And in fact, this book came fourth in my top 10 books for UK property investors and is reviewed extensively in episode 65. In the book, the author suggests that if your business depends on you, you don't have a business, you have a job and often work for the worst and most demanding boss in the world. You. I want things done right. And that's where it all started. I was a control freak. It took me 15 years to hire my first assistant. I had some helpers along the way that didn't last very long because I controlled them too much. It's part of that just behavior is about wanting everything done, being too hyper-focused on everything. So letting it go is very, very difficult. So building systems around how I delegate to make sure the stuff's done right first time, every time. That's how I learned to let go and start delegating. Successful solopreneurs who realize this and introduce systems and processes to ensure that the business no longer depends on themselves often have a kind of meltdown moment that led them to systemization. I asked Steve about his. The, the big one for me was when I moved here. So about 2016, 17, first couple of years here. My son was born a few months after I left the UK. My dad was my sort of unofficial business partner in my properties back in the UK. And he was going to sort of hold the fort and look after stuff when I was over here and get my feet settled and figuring out how the hell I was going to actually support this portfolio from Sweden. And unfortunately, he died about three months after, just before my son was born. So I had a newborn son. I'd also quit my job as a doctor, so I had no income. My business partner and my dad, one of my best mates, died. And basically, I had to figure out how the hell I was going to do this. 
that's when it really kicked off. I'd always been in systems. I've done a degree in computing, systems analysis and design. Absolutely loved that, aced all that, applied that to my property business. That allowed me to travel all over the world, but it was still me doing it, even though it was incredibly systemized. And then when all this happened and I was traveling back to the UK, spending around 50% of my life, either flying or staying in rubbish Airbnbs and doing networking and all the rest of it like you do when you're trying to get back into property. Because I've been out of it for eight years in medicine. My son at the time was just a few months old. So it was his first year of his life, I never saw him. And so I got to a point and I was pretty depressed by all this happening and just not really being a part of my own family and living this vagabond lifestyle almost, just like never actually having anywhere to call home. And that was the end of it. And I just went, no, sod this, property's out. I'm going to figure out how to do something remotely that I absolutely love. I went through loads of different books about finding your way and values and all the rest of it. And eventually landed on his conversation with you know, Dr. D. Martini. Have you heard of him? I have heard of him. He's the guy about values, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. The values factor and lots of other stuff besides. I read that book a couple of times, went to a seminar with him, uh, ended up having dinner with him. We invited him out for dinner and he said, yes. Uh, really nice guy. Just very, very humble. And during that meal, and I said, can I ask you a question? And I said, I'm really at this crossroads about what I should be doing. I've got this background in property. I've got portfolio. I just don't feel that passionate about it. You know, I've always had a love for systems. I love teaching. I love like just fixing business problems. Many years ago, I wrote a business plan about what I wanted to be when I grew up almost. I was late 20s probably when I wrote it. And on there, it was literally that I want to have high-level conversations with successful business owners and solve their problems. So I sort of explained this to him and he just went, well, just do that then. And that was it. <laughs> I went, that's a good idea. It was just so simple. I was like, yeah, that's what I did. And then I just got into Facebook, started doing some posting about what I was doing, about systemizing originally my properties and said, look, I use Asana, I use these apps, you know, I could happily show you what I'm doing. Anyone interested in coming on my course, which didn't exist. And people started signing up <laughs> and paying me money. I had done it, but I just hadn't got a course to show for it. But I just switched my Zoom on, shared my screen, talked people through it, and they loved it and nailed it and did like got massively like good results from it. So I thought if I can do that off the back of a fag packet, then if I put some thought into it, then maybe I can actually make a difference. And that's my story. If you go to Dr. Martini's website, also linked in the show notes, there's a page there with 13 questions which are designed to help you to determine your, and I quote, unique hierarchy of values, which will assist you to honestly look at what your life demonstrates as truly important to you. Well, I did this about a year ago, and I must confess, all it did was tell me that I was spending far too much time following my favourite football team. But Steve suggested that maybe I was looking at it the wrong way. I guess the way he talks about values is slightly different. What he talks about is actually just, and this is what I got from anyway, just being really realistic with what you actually value. So what you put your time, your money and your energy to is what you value, whether you like it or not. And so the idea I got from that was when I looked at myself and looked at everything I do, when I think about and everything, business came top, even above my family, even above my health, you know, and that was an eye opener. So it made me realize that maybe my values were skewed. And so actually I needed to look at that and think, look, is this actually what I want to value the most? Because if I look at this analysis, and this was back then when all that crisis stuff was happening, this is actually what I want my values to be. And can I do anything about that? And is there actually me looking inward and saying, look, am I valuing the wrong things too highly at the cost of some things that maybe in the long term would be more worthwhile putting some more um, 
energy into. So that's what I got from it. So I thought it was useful. Right. So you worked out what your values were based on Martini's kind of model, if you like. And then that effectively led you to systemization because you realized that your values weren't what you wanted them to be. Yeah, kind of. I guess so. I've probably never really thought about it as much as I have just in the last five minutes. But yeah, I guess that is part of the journey. The realization, A, business is very important to me. It made me confident in the decision to quit medicine. And I felt that was the right move. That was one good thing that came from it. And the second thing, yeah, that if I continue valuing business as highly as I did and don't actually think about family and things enough, then ultimately what I told myself, my inner dialogue was I'm doing this to support my family. I'm doing this to provide a better quality of life for my family in the long run. But at what cost? And literally, like I didn't really get to know my son properly for the first year and a half, two years. Uh, I just missed out on all that stuff. We just had a second son recently. He's just uh, about 14 months old now. And this experience with him has been just night and day. And I feel really guilty for that. Like I missed out so much on my first son's very early stages, thinking that actually I wasn't really needed. I'm the, the man who needs his mum at that time. And and I couldn't be more wrong. And I think that, you know, now being through that again, um, I, I feel quite strongly about that, that it was the wrong decision. There could have been a way to do it differently. And, I, and luckily I did it, you know, at some point. So I finally made the right decision, I think. I don't know if you're like me and you have some words that you kind of vaguely understand, but you couldn't really define them exactly. Well, didact is one of those words for me. So I went to the dictionary to look it up. And a didact is someone who is inclined to instruct others. Now, Steve told Dr. Martini that he loves processes and teaching. So I guess he was always destined to teach systemization. And he came up with a model for his students to follow. It's an acronym that spells, you guessed it, didact. Can you tell us about didact? Didact was one of the first real effective systems that I ever created. And it was a solution to six major problems that I had when I was working with my first ever sort of virtual assistants. Like many great solutions in business, they come from solving our own problems that we then formalize in create frameworks or whatever you want to call them. And Didact is one of those frameworks, but it didn't start off as a, hey, let's go and create Didact. It started off as, okay, how do I fix problem A? How do I fix problem B? So Didact, I'll tell you what it stands for. Description, um, the, um, <laughs> the, the inputs, the deliverables, the access, the checks, and the time. So I'll go through all of them and explain how they all came about as quickly as I can. So description is all about telling the person actually really clearly what you want them to do and why you want them to do it. And the why is important. So you tell them the effect of it being done well or be done badly, then it puts more meaning onto the task and actually increases people's likelihood of actually taking it seriously and doing it. Because something may seem mundane, may seem repetitive, may seem insignificant, but when they understand the consequences of that being done well or not, either you know, positive or negatively, then it actually really help them actually focus. So the second thing is the inputs. When I worked with people in the Philippines mainly, but also in India, Eastern Europe, in uh, South Africa, in South America, in the UK, in Finland, in Sweden, so all over Germany, so all over I've had people over the years. And one of the biggest challenges I faced when I was working with people with different time zones was that I'd give them a task to do and then come back the next day expecting it to be done. And all you see is on your messages, you said, oh yeah, you forgot to give me the password. 
and she forgot to give me the information that you needed to do the task. So what was the, the name of the property you wanted me to look at? What was the postcode that you wanted me to do? Some key information and it was missing. So I is for input. What is everything I need to give this person in terms of links to uh, spreadsheets, to websites? And if you have a reminder of that, when you're delegating a task of every single thing you need to give somebody, the likelihood of you forgetting it goes down dramatically. That's the inputs. Then deliverables. So what are they going to produce and where are they going to put it? So you don't have to go searching around for it. You've got, you've got the permission to view it because they put it into the shared folder, which you asked them to. So you really explicitly say this stuff. And then A is for access. Access is all about giving people the ability to access everything they need to do the job. Now, this could be passwords. It could be permissions on files and folders. Anything they need to actually have permission that you as the business owner or the operations manager has to actually give them in order for them to complete the task. This is where you document that. So when you delegate this task to somebody new, you remember what you need to give them. Because back to that story about working with an assistant on the other side of the planet, exactly the same scenario that you give them a task to do, you expect them to do it. And they, all they do is they come back and say, oh, I haven't got access to this. So you give them access to that. Then they come back and say, oh, I can't access that file. All these twos and fro's and back and forth just slow down the productivity of the person, but also they're continually interrupting you in your day when you should be focusing on stuff. And every time you get dragged out to deal with a minutial problem like this, it just messes up your focus, your concentration, and you can't get into a deep work and do your best work. So all these things really, really mess my brain up because it takes me a long time to get back into focus mode. And so I try to remove any possibility that someone can actually interrupt me once I've handed something over. So then after the A in didact is C for checks. Um, and this is super useful. And this came from the annoyance of people giving you something back and you're looking at it and within a second going, that's not what I asked for. Or oh, like, have they not like spell check this? Or all those annoying things you think, why can't this person just see the obvious? So if it is important, and it's obvious to you, but maybe not to somebody else, you just put it in the check. So what are the final things people need to check before they hand something back to you? We're talking about recurring work. You're not going to create one of these didacts in detail every time you delegate. You need to think about everything as you delegate. So you still actually go through the didact method in your head when you're giving any task to anybody, but you're not going to document it and keep it updated if it's not recurring. So for recurring tasks, it's obviously by nature been done before. So at the end of it being done, taking a screenshot and sticking a link to that screenshot in the checks allows the person to see what was done last time correctly so they can compare their work to what, what, they're, what they're meant to have done and then go, oh, that's not right. Maybe I'll go and check it before I waste my manager's time. And the final one is T for time. And that is, again, when you give somebody something and you're not sat in the same room as a morning for you are and they're on the other side of the office and you expect it to take 10 minutes and three hours later, you wander over to them or you email them and say, where's that work? And they, oh yeah, just, just finishing up now. And they spent three hours doing something which should have taken 10 minutes. Or conversely, you give them a project, you get on with that, great. You know, you think it's going to be detailed and all the rest of it. They spent 10 minutes doing something you wanted them to spend three hours on to give you the result you were looking for. Either way, you're not going to get your result. So just giving a rough guesstimate of how long something takes in the initial state, like when, when you don't generally know, it will give them an idea of actually they understand the scope of the work now because they now know how long they should be taking on it. And then it's a great place as well to, once you do this work recurrently, you can now store the average time taken 
to help you with workload balancing, when you're delegating work, when someone goes off on sick leave or on holiday, then actually having a very good idea of how long every single task takes means you can actually do that without overwhelming people. And so that's didact. Fantastic. So can we go back to input where you were talking about the the VA needs to be organized and you have to be organized so that they're organized, right? Yeah. (laughs) Because if you're going to kind of document the task that you want them to do, you've got to be super organized and make sure that you've been through it all so that they do it correctly and go through all the rest of didact, right? But this is where I get a little bit stuck because I haven't actually made the leap of faith. I'm trying to systemize myself, but I'm stuck because I find that I don't have enough time to get everything documented to hand over to somebody else. Absolutely. The biggest reason, and I've spoken to literally thousands of people through surveys and through conversations, and the biggest reason small business owners, especially solopreneurs, don't take this leap of faith and Either hire their first assistant, is what you just said then, because I think I need to get systemized before I hire, or just they don't ever create systems even when they've got somebody because they think it takes too long to create systems. And so when that person leaves, they're back to square one. Actually worse, because now all the new work falls back on their plate as well. And I've been there and done that, and my story of pain is why I've created all this stuff. The best way that I've worked to overcome this, and we call it our, our red method, and it's basically a record red method. RED stands for record, explain, and then didact. Every time you do a task that you already do, is the perfect opportunity to create a detailed, documented version of that task with every single thing that person needs in order to do that task from start to finish without your involvement. And the awesome thing is, if you do it this way, it doesn't take you any more time than it would have done to do the task anyway. So that time fear or challenge that most people have is because you are thinking about creating operation manuals in an old-fashioned way, in my opinion. You're thinking you need to actually write something down. And that's exactly the way I used to do it. I've got a degree in computing, as I said. I've been writing SOPs for 25 years. And I used to write, sit there and write out in a Word document, you know, step one, step two, take a screenshot, stick it in there. But then I realized that's a far, far better way. So red, R stands for record. So next time you do the task, start off your screen capture app, one we recommend is ScreenPal. Also Loom, there's loads of others out there. If you want something that's super quick, not using a Zoom, far too cumbersome. You want something that literally is on your desktop, you click a button or you have a shortcut, it pings it off, records. When you're finished, it automatically uploads it. You upload it, you get link into your clipboard automatically, and then you can send that to somebody. And those are the key things of choosing a good screen recording app. If you don't have those, then get one that does Loom, you can get a free version. ScreenPal, you can get a free version. So start there and then you can pay for one if you need to at some point. The reason for that is you need as few barriers in the way for you actually getting this done as possible. And if you have to open up a load of apps and remember what you do and all the rest of it, you won't do it because you'll think, oh, I'll just crack on with it because you're busy. That's the whole point. That's why you want to delegate it because you're already overwhelmed. So we want to make it as seamless as possible. So when you start a new task, So R is for record. You hit record, and then you do the E of red, which is explain. So as you do it, you just explain out loud what you're doing. If you make a mistake, you don't stop, restart, and try and make it perfect. You just explain. Because you've got to imagine, this is like having somebody in your office, a new person comes in, and you're training them up, and you're sat on the computer, and they're looking over your shoulder, or they're maybe on the keyboard doing it with you, you know, whatever. And then you go, all right, 
click on here and click on there and put this in. oh no no don't sorry no no sorry that's not the way we do it anymore you can't erase that when you're doing it live with someone in the room so don't bother trying to erase it on a video people aren't stupid so if you say to them there's a few mistakes in there just watch it through once before you start doing it and you'll see where i've messed up they'll get it obviously if you totally screw up and now you've done a five minute part of the video and it's nonsense the great thing is a screen pal is you just go rewind to where you where the good bit is and carry on where you left off most apps don't do that loom may do now but it didn't used to so that's one of the reasons i I, i've always stuck with screen pal so you're doing exactly what you do anyway you're just narrating yourself through it and you're explaining all the parts of didact as you go so once you've got it in your brain what didact is and you've done this you know 10 times it becomes natural so you print off i'll get my clients the first thing i ask them to do is print off didact and stick it on the wall behind your screen, you know, wherever you can see it. So every time you're recording a video, you go into, have I explained at the beginning? Yeah, okay. As I've gone through, have I identified all the inputs that they're going to be using? Have I told them where this is going to go? What it is I actually want them? Is it a JPEG? Is it a PDF? What size should it be? Which folder should it be saved in? Everything like that. Just explain it. Once you actually get good at this, it literally is a minute or two extra on top of your, your normal working time. So you've recorded it, you've explained it all, and you've used Didact. That's the red method. It's that simple. And now you've got the video, set up a task management app. So Asana, Trello, whatever. We recommend Asana, Asana, Trello, ClickUp, Zoho. It doesn't matter. Monday, whatever you're using, and just create a board for yourself, daily, weekly, monthly. So Kanban-style board with three columns, daily, weekly, monthly. That task you've just done, you either do it daily, weekly, or monthly, or periodically. So you have four columns. So daily, weekly, monthly, or periodically. You put it in the column representing the frequency and you paste that link, which you've got in your clipboard because you just use a cool app that does this. You paste it into that. You've now got a fully documented version of the task you're going to delegate to your virtual assistant or whoever you're hiring. You do that for two weeks and you've got ample work to take somebody on and have them be able to then go and do the work. And then once they start doing it, they can re-record all the videos in a nice polished way. They can write up your operation manuals. They can systemize your business for you. Your job's done. Where do you stand on that idea that you really need to understand something before you record it for other people and then they record it for the next person should they leave your kind of operation versus, I don't know what I'm doing at all, say bookkeeping maybe or social media or, or data scraping in Rightmove, whatever it might be. You get someone who's an expert at that, and then they document it all, do the videos on Loom uh, or Screen, what was it called? Screen Pal. Right, okay. So where do you stand on that then? <laughs> on the fence, no. Uh, <laughs> it depends. When you're starting out, if you're a solopreneur and you're doing everything yourself, the worst thing, in my opinion, you can do is go and hire somebody to go and do some more stuff for you because you're already overwhelmed. You've already got far too much on your plate if you're a solopreneur, if you've not got one, two, three assistants or whatever really the capacity of your workload requires, then bringing somebody in to say, just from your examples, doing your social media for you, that isn't without work. Like you can't just hire somebody and say, here's 500 quid, go and do my social media. Because they're going to say, okay, great. Have you got your brand guidelines? Have you got your style guidelines? Do you have any bio? Do you have some photos? What images are you What kind of posts do you want? You have to feed them information otherwise they are going to create something that they've just made up maybe that would be okay and you're happy with that and you don't want any sort of personalization you don't want it to be sort of in line with your business but i think most people do if you're putting stuff out on social media with your name on it you probably want to have some control over at least 
the kind of thing that's getting done. So there's going to be work like creating a website. Typically, you give the person the copy or you get interviewed by a copywriter and that takes time. You have to go back and forth and you argue with them about how it's going to look and what they're going to say. You know, there's all these things drag you in far more than you think. The only exception, I think, is the one, the one you mentioned, which is bookkeeping. Now, depending on the complexity of your bookkeeping, bookkeeping is something I think everybody should get rid of today. Low value work, but actually requires quite a lot of skill. And there's an entire industry, established industry set up to do it with lots of highly recommended people at a relatively effective cost. It's like saying to somebody, I know, try and do your own dentistry work or, or go to the dentist. It's like, it's a no brainer. But when it comes to something like booking, oh, I can do that. It's like, yeah, but you're not a professional. So depending on what you're trying to get out of your bookkeeping, but just to get your books done, to get your accounts done, which is what most entrepreneurs really need to focus on at the beginning, just just get rid of it. So there are exceptions. This is a long answer, but we'll get there. So going back to your question about what should you then get rid of? Really simple. So we we teach the personal systemization plan method, and it's the first step in our six-step process. Um, And it comes directly before the record process, which I just talked about. And this is about deciding what it is you are going to record first. What are you going to get off your plate today? Because if you can free your time, then you've got time to do anything you need, like hire a social media person or whatever it is that you actually want to do to grow your business. You can have the time to do it properly and not waste money hiring somebody, giving them a half-assed attention because you're just so distracted. And then actually not getting the result you wanted to and getting frustrated. And I know this because I've done it so many times myself. So we start by saying, okay, what are you doing today? Instead of just recording it, write down how long it took you. So what did you do? How long did it take you? And that's it. And then at the end of a week or end of a month, you'll have a big long list of everything you do. And the simplest way to do this, and you can use apps like Toggle, for example, for tracking your time. But I find the simplest way, spreadsheet, task name, And then every column will be how many minutes I took every time I did it. So if I did it 10 times a day, there'll be 10 entries for that day. And I just create a long list, a long spreadsheet, and then I total it all up at the end of the time. It's super quick. And I like things that don't take time. So once you've got this, you've got an idea of what you do each day. And again, that can go onto your task board that I talked about before. Now you know all the stuff that happens in my business daily, weekly, monthly, and periodically. You've now got a roadmap of your entire business. And you've also got how long everything takes. All of that sheet highest to lowest, go to the top and say, knowing what I know right now, after listening to this podcast, could I systemize that and give that to somebody else without too much effort? If it's a yes, keep it there. If it's a no, put it to the bottom and go through the list. And what you'll end up with is 10, 15 things that you think, you know what, they're A, taking a long time and B, I could probably work out how to actually give them to somebody with what I already know. And then you're set. If you want to go back to your doing stuff you love or doing stuff you hate, of that list, pick the ones you hate. But don't go, oh, you know, I really hate X, Y, Z. I'm going to now give it to somebody else unless you've actually done this exercise. Because A, it may not be actually taking you very long anyway. And B, it may actually be really difficult to systemize at this point with what you know. I want to talk a little bit about empowering people now. So when you hire a virtual assistant, everyone says, you know, if you want to get the benefit, for both sides, you want to empower them, you want to be giving them something, not just taking from them. So specifically for property, let's say you're hiring a VA from the Philippines. Is it really any benefit for someone in the Philippines to be learning about UK property? What other ways could you empower them? So there's massive benefits for someone in the Philippines to learn about UK property. 
People that typically in employment, generally speaking, this was quite an eye-opening to me when I spoke to my wife about this, but my wife has no ambition to be self-employed. Zero. She wants to be employed. She wants the security. She wants to be part of an organization where she gets paid to go to work. And when she finishes her daily work, she can do what the hell she wants. And she's at a high level in a company. It's not like she's, you know, by any means lazy, but she wants work to be work and home to be home. And that's not what you have as a typical entrepreneur. So when you're hiring people, you're giving them an opportunity to work for a UK-based company. And people in the Philippines rate working for a UK company quite highly. It's quite a good status level if you work for a UK company. You can offer them a really good wage as well. You can offer them the ability to learn an industry in a country where there's other people that need people with that expertise. So just because they're not learning a skill, say, I know like uh, Filipino tax or something you'd think would be really relevant to them, they're learning a skill which will make them highly valuable in the job market. So as a property investor, if you went onto a job posting site like onlinejobs.ph, which is the one that we often use, create a nice job advert, and if someone applies for your job, one of the criteria you've put is you want them to have at least three years experience in UK property. Suddenly that person that you employed that then for whatever reason left has now got the experience to get a more higher paid job. One of the things that has changed in me over the years, when I very first started with working with virtual assistants is I don't call them virtual assistants. I use that word because you know what I'm talking about when I say it. But in my company, they're just my team. A virtual assistant doesn't do anything. You can have a PA, a personal assistant, at least that's actually a known job title. But virtual assistant doesn't really mean anything. So, so when you're hiring somebody and you give them a job role, then you're giving them the opportunity to grow in that company and get a skill set, which gives them status and gives them a title. So that's all you need to really think about. It's the same with your hiring someone from the UK. Yeah, it's a bit dehumanizing, isn't it? The term virtual assistant, isn't it? It is, because it's not a real thing. Yeah, I never thought about that before. I'm going to stop using that term now. I have used it in the past, but from now on, I will not be using that term. So what have you learned in terms of hiring team members? See, I've started well. In terms of hiring team members, what do you wish you'd known when you first started it that you know now, perhaps specifically in relation to the Philippines? Good question. I wish in the early days I put more effort into the hiring process. I had a recruitment agency back in my 20s. Not very successful, unfortunately. We just lost money. But I learned a thing or two, I thought. What? You earn or you learn? Well, I thought I learned. But actually, when I came into business again, I started using the same techniques that we'd used before. Things like putting your job posting up, getting people to send in covering letters and CVs. And I talked about this on my podcast the other day, actually. The problem with that is you're then comparing apples and pears. No two CVs are similar enough to actually have any true comparison, objective opinion on. So you're just basically cherry picking and it's all subjective and it's all made up anyway. You know, I used to get copywriters to write my medical applications because that's what you did. Other people are the same. They're going to use ChatGPT or whatever these days to actually write a really nice CV that sells themselves really well. You spend time and effort on them. You get into interview, you sit down, you know, in the first 30 seconds, this person is not right for me. But because we're nice and British and polite, we still sit there for 20 minutes and go through the motions and ask the questions. So that is a huge waste of time. And so what happens is, or what I did anyway, was I basically shortcut it and just go, oh, basically, oh, they'll do. You know, they're all right. Do I really need to do an interview? 
oh, I'll just see what they're like when they start working for me. They'll be fine. I'll, I'll put them on probation for a week. The amount of time you've wasted in doing that, onboarding them, training them, then you're in for a week and you're like, oh, I've put all this effort in now. I know they're no good. I can't be bothered starting again. So you just stick with them. And I did this for months at times. And like, you know, and I just be dragging my heels with people and like, and just so frustrated thinking, oh, this virtual assistant inverted commas, this doesn't work. It's not for me. It's either my business is broken or it's not suitable for remote working. All the people I'm finding are just rubbish. One of those, I don't know which one, but I'm probably going to blame the other person because it's easiest. <laughs> actually, the problem was I wasn't actually putting people through a decent recruitment process to attract people the right people who had, yep, the right skills, but more importantly, the right attitude and the aptitude to learn, but also the right values. And so now we have a very different approach. We call it the Recruit Right Hiring System. It's a very structured approach. We attract as many people as possible based on values. We eliminate all but the top 10%, roughly, of those people. We then test that remaining 10%, depending on the numbers you get through, the percentages, and then of those that pass our stringent test and application process, we then do a recorded interview. So we ask them to record themselves answering interview questions. We review that. And only if they pass all of those things, do we look at the CV to make sure there's nothing that contradicts what they've said in the rest of the process. And then we interview them. So by the time they get to interview, because of the process we go through, I know they have the minimum requirements for working with me in terms of time availability, um, the, the computing speed, the internet, for example, whatever, all the things we, we ask at the beginning. I know they can do the work. I've actually tested them. I know they communicate well. They're punctual in handing things in, at least you know, at this stage anyway. I've done my best actually proving that they're probably going to be okay when they start. I've also tested things like their English grammar and language. I've actually seen, can they actually write effectively? And I've seen them on video communicate in the way that I speak to all my staff every single day, which is via Zoom. If they've ticked all those boxes and presented themselves well on the interview and not been sat in a room full of kids or dogs, or I've had one some the other day in a tank top with, uh, with music blowing in the background on an interview video. And we even tell them, we don't, you know, oh, we're going to catch this one out here. We say, present yourselves professionally as if you were coming to work. So by the time they get to the interview, we've already made our decision most of the time, or we'll be just like, yeah, we just need to see this person. There's no shocks, you know, and often it's it's like you get a good feeling about somebody. You ask them the questions about values and you can dig into the personality a bit more in the live interview. But that's all we're doing then because we've got all the, the, the data to support this decision. So the decision's easy. And actually, when that person comes on board, we're, we're pretty confident they're going to be good. And the, the dropout rate, therefore, is far, far lower because their expectations have also been massively increased because they're working for a company that has a professional recruitment and onboarding system. They've gone through all the hoops. They've jumped through. They've, they've had you know, congratulations. You've got through the next stage. You've bigged them up. You've bigged up this experience of working for you as a business. You onboard them professionally. You train them on the first few days. This is a company this person wants to work in long term because they've got their stuff together. I know that you're quite big with LastPass, right? You're a big fan of LastPass, which is a password system. But my fear with this is it seems that it would be very easy to do from the beginning, but I feel that mine's a bit of a mess. I've done some on LastPass and I haven't done others on LastPass. How would I sort that out, that mess? LastPass, the Bitwarden is another one. They all do the same thing. And the idea is that 
when you log into a website, it pre-fills your username and password from your secure database. So it's very similar to Google Password or you know, most people have used some type of password locker. The difference with things like LastPass is that you can get team versions, you can share passwords, you can share admin access, you can give people rights to add things into your own vault. So when you're working with assistants or teams, it's super useful to be able to actually have a centralized password vault where you choose who gets access to what and you have total control over it. I will say these types of passwords safe, not just LastPass, any of them, they're not secure because it's not that the database or their LastPass got hacked a while ago and they probably all will at some point. That's not what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about daily use of them with your assistants. You've got to assume if you share a password with someone through LastPass or Bitwarden or whatever, then they can see that password. Even if you click the button, don't show them. Because when they put it into the browser, into Google, you'll notice that lovely little eye symbol next to your password. You can click that and it'll show you your password. They can do exactly the same thing. So just assume that they can always see a password if you've shared it with them. So we have a technique called a UNA. I won't go into details, but basically identifying when somebody leaves the company, we have a record of what they've had access to by looking at the vault in LastPass. And then we decide, is it a password that we actually care about and need to change? So any like, you know, anything that's got anything sensitive, anything mission critical, anything would actually, you know, it would affect the business or have any potential ability to delete data, anything like that. Obviously we change those passwords, but then there's hundreds of passwords. So things like a free stock image account that we set up for the company to use all that sort of stuff. I don't bother changing all those because there's no cost to the company if it goes down. And it's a, it is a cost to the company to keep changing them every time somebody leaves. So with that said, how do you move into something like that when you've either never done it? It's actually quite easy, like you say, because once you set it up, every time you log into something, it'll ask you to, to save the password into the vault. And then you just press yes, and it'll automatically add it and you've got it the next time. But if you've already got some in some place and some in others, the key is to turn off the prompt on your browser or whatever you're currently using to ask to save new passwords. That way you don't have an option to save it into whatever other app you're using. And then every time you log in, say you're using Chrome at the moment, you're using their password vault, it will autofill from that. But then when you click log in, it should, nine times out of 10, LastPass will ask you to save it. And so actually just by doing your daily work, all of your common passwords will get added to LastPass pretty easily probably eight, nine times out of 10. Sometimes you have to sort of manually add them in because they don't quite pick it up right. But that's just the nature of these things. So that's it. I could not run my business without one now. I'd have to have a black book next to me. I share hundreds of passwords to my staff. It would be chaos. So as soon as you start hiring staff, that's when you need to start thinking about getting at least a premium account. The free one isn't suitable because of the sharing. At least a premium account and I'd recommend going for the business one as soon as you can because you get this cool thing called shared drives, which means you can share like a whole bunch of stuff. So I have a shared drive set up for each department. And then you basically drop everything about operations, about marketing, about sales into, into one place. And then I can go add a person to the whole folder in one go and remove them in one go. So it's super easy. What about bank accounts? Is that the same thing? While they're working for you, you give them access. And then that's the one that you definitely change when they leave. No, it's a good question, actually. So things like bank accounts, CRMs with, for example, customer data in, I would never share passwords to a group or even one individual. 
from a shared account because for data protection reasons, you need to be able to actually audit who made a mess up if it does mess up. And also for your bank, you want to be pretty sure that you know who's got access to it, where and when, and what level of access they've got. So this is the key is that the level of access for business grade apps, so banking apps, CRMs, the two examples, but there's lots of other ones like web hosting, for example, if you've got a learning management system like me, like you don't want to give people super user access to lots of things. So most business apps will give you the option to add a user. So you add the user and they set up their own password and their own username. But then when they leave, you just delete that user. So there's no changing of passwords in those sorts of examples. And the benefit of that is, as I said, you can track who logged in because they would save that password to their last pass, but you wouldn't have access to it. So you can see exactly who logged in, if there are any problems or whatever, and then you can change the permission levels. So you can say this person, like my ops manager, gets to be a, an admin on my last pass, but my staff don't get to be an admin. On the CRM, there'll be people that can add users and people that can't. Same with uh, Google, for example. So certain things we add users and certain things we, we don't. Great. And if people want to contact you, Steve, what's the best way? The best way is to go to my website, www.systemsandoutsourcing.com. And at the bottom, there's all my social links, a link to book a call with me, and you can contact me through any of those means you wish. They're all monitored and picked up by my team. So anything you message me on will come to me eventually. You'll get a nice message from Diana before I get to see it anyway, but I will get to it eventually. And also, I'd love for you to check out my podcast, which is Systemize Your Success. So Systemize with a Z, your success. And we're top 5% at the moment globally. And it's all about, guess what, systemizing your business. So <laughs> it's a great podcast. I'm a, I'm a big fan. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for your time, Steve. Really enjoyed our conversation. Great to meet you. My absolute pleasure. It was lots of fun. Cheers. For my three highlights this week, the first one is for if you don't know where to start. You probably have a day job at the same time as trying to build a UK property portfolio. So you're probably time poor. And the idea of having to allocate any of your precious time to teaching other people how to do the work for you may lead to feelings of overwhelm and the idea that you don't know where to start. Steve's advice was to set up a spreadsheet and write down every task you do related to your business and log how long it took to do. At the end of the month, Take your list and reorganize it from longest to shortest in terms of how long each task takes, and then think about which tasks you like least and whether you could hand those jobs over to someone else. The second point to ponder is around recruitment of your team members. The purpose of this whole episode is how to create the time needed to drive your business forward, and one part of this involves designing a really thorough and efficient recruitment process so that you're not wasting time hiring and ultimately firing the wrong people for your team. And the final takeaways are Steve's handy acronyms, DIDACT, which is his checklist for delegating tasks and stands for Description, Inputs, Deliverable, Access, Checks and Time. And his other acronym, RED, is for documenting and instructing tasks via video. Steve recommended ScreenPal. And RED stands for Record, Explain, and then Didact. 
Thank you so much for joining me and listening to this episode. I'm well aware there are hundreds of great business podcasts out there and you chose to listen to this one. And for that, I am truly grateful. Hopefully what you heard today took you one step closer to building a successful business so you can share your passion with the world and serve an ever-growing number of people. If you got value out of today's episode, then so will someone else that you know. By sharing with others what has helped you along your way, you will grow your influence and be the guy or girl that everybody wants to know. So please hit the share button right now and also remember to subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss future episodes. It's impossible for me to cover absolutely everything in these podcasts, so please do head over to systemizeyoursuccess.com right now and download the show notes, transcriptions, and some of my best frameworks and systems for free. Thanks again for tuning in and being a part of this amazing community. Until next time, this is Dr. Steve Day, and you've been listening to Systemize Your Success. Your Success.